Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In today's podcast, we are joined by Dr. Phoebe Yeager to discuss the use of non-invasive ventilation in paediatrics. As ever, we are also joined in the beginning by my colleagues, Ahmad and Krista. Well, hey guys, it's good to be back in the studio with you two. It's December and there's snow on the ground, and it's not my first snow, but it's like meeting an old college friend. Yeah, an old college friend that overstays their welcome. Ken, how are you dealing with the snow? Well, as a Brit coming here, uh, the snow's all very exciting. It's a novel concept for me, but as it gets on, I'm feeling a bit acopic with the snow. Hold on, what does acopic mean? Yeah, I've never heard that word. What's acopic? Do you guys not have that? Acopic, to not cope. Ah, yes, our baseline. Ah, I have a word for my malady. Anyway, that's enough of that. Now on to today's podcast. Winter has well and truly arrived here in Boston. For paediatricians, this means lots of chocolates, sweets and candy around the hospital with the festive season approaching, but also lots of coughing and sneezing patients. The winter peak in respiratory tract infections brings considerable pressure to paediatric emergency departments and intensive care units across the country, with respiratory illness being a major cause of morbidity and mortality for paediatric patients it is a significant source of anxiety for parents and physicians alike. The majority of paediatric respiratory tract infections are caused by viruses, meaning supportive measures are the mainstay in management for these patients. Non-invasive ventilation methods are effective tools to support the respiratory function of these patients while they fight off the infection. To explore non-invasive ventilation, as well as discussing some of the recent studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at its use in paediatrics and neonatology, I am joined by Dr. Phoebe Yeager. Dr. Yeager is a paediatric intensivist and chief of the Division of Paediatric Critical Care at the Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. She is also the program director for the Paediatric Critical Care Medicine Fellowship at MGH and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Yeager, and thanks for joining us. Well done for making it through the snow. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. Great. So to start off with, can you tell us a bit about the different methods of non-invasive ventilation that are used in paediatrics? Sure. There are three modes of non-invasive ventilation currently in use in pediatrics. These include continuous positive airway pressure, referred to as CPAP, bilevel positive airway pressure, known as BiPAP, and high-flow nasal cannula. CPAP and BiPAP have been in use for many years. Both require a tight-fitting patient interface, either in the nostrils using special nasal prongs with pillows to prevent nasal septum necrosis, over the nose using a nasal mask, or over the nose and mouth using a full face mask. The latter two interfaces require that the mask pressure be evenly distributed across the bony structures of the face and off the eyes to maintain a good seal and to prevent damage to the eyes. CPAP delivers a constant pressure in centimeters of water. The pressure can be either flow or pressure generated. In the former, the device generates a preset flow that leads to a back pressure in proportion to the set flow and resistance of the patient's respiratory system. In the latter, the device generates a preset pressure applied to the mouth and or nose. BiPAP differs from CPAP in that it delivers two levels of pressure, a higher one for inhalation, called IPAP, and a lower one for exhalation, called EPAP. With BiPAP, the provider can also set an emergency backup respiratory rate to kick in at the same time an alarm sounds should the patient stop triggering a minimum acceptable number of breaths per minute. The third mode of non-invasive ventilation, called high-flow nasal cannula, differs from CPAP and BiPAP in that it does not rely on a tight-fitting patient interface and therefore tends to be better tolerated by patients. In fact, the special nasal cannula used to deliver high flow must always have a leak. 
High-flow nasal cannula is sometimes referred to as heated, humidified high-flow nasal cannula because it works by passing blended oxygen through a heated humidifier before patient delivery. It's important to point out that all three modes of non-invasive ventilation were designed to prevent the need for invasive ventilation employing an endotracheal tube, which comes with significantly greater morbidity. That's great. So if we look at it from a respiratory physiology and mechanics perspective, so how does CPAP and high-flow nasal oxygen work in providing the respiratory support? Well, the continuous positive pressure delivered by CPAP helps to stent open the airways at multiple levels. This reduces airways resistance, prevents alveolar collapse, and improves lung compliance. All of this helps to maintain functional residual capacity, improve gas exchange, and reduce work of breathing. With high-flow nasal cannula, the ability to heat and humidify blended oxygen prior to delivery enables one to provide a higher flow than would be tolerated with dry gas via simple nasal cannula. The amount of flow of blended oxygen delivered via high-flow nasal cannula exceeds that needed to wash out carbon dioxide, helping to reduce carbon dioxide rebreathing. In addition, it's long been thought that high-flow nasal cannula works similarly to CPAP by transmitting some level of continuous positive pressure to the lungs. But this wasn't entirely clear until several recent publications, including one out of Mass General Hospital, published in Respiratory Care 2018. Using 3D-printed pediatric airways and a mechanical lung model, the authors determined that high-flow nasal cannula does in fact deliver airway and alveolar pressure. They examine how much pressure is delivered for every liter per minute increase in flow. And depending on the manufacturer and the setup used, the amount of PEEP delivered has about a 2 to 1 ratio with the level of flow delivered. For example, delivering 10 liters per minute of flow resulted in 5 centimeters of water of alveolar PEEP. They found this to be true up to 25 liters per minute, at which point the relationship between flow and pressure dramatically changed, with much less pressure generated for every liter of flow. As one might expect, increasing flow and decreasing the air leak by upsizing the diameter of the nasal cannula resulted in higher levels of PEEP delivered. Conversely, the greater the air leak, the less PEEP delivered. Excellent. So some of our listeners might not be familiar with the differences between adults and pediatric lung physiology and how they are both affected by disease. Can you just explain some of these differences, please? Sure. So at birth, the alveolar surface area available for gas exchange is relatively small at about 2.8 meters squared. Alveolarization continues in the postnatal period and by eight years of age increases by a factor of 10 and by adulthood, it typically reaches about 75 meters squared. That's roughly 800 square feet or the size of a typical studio apartment. In addition, humans don't develop interalveolar channels called pores of con until the first or second year of life, nor do they develop bronchoalveolar connections called Lambert's channels until after six years. A smaller alveolar surface area coupled with an inability to bypass areas of lower airway obstruction during respiratory illnesses place infants and children at increased risk of atelectasis, leading to ventilation-perfusion mismatch. Another important difference between adult and pediatric lung physiology concerns the chest wall. Infants have a soft, cartilaginous rib cage that contributes to a highly compliant chest wall with poor recoil. This serves the neonate well during the birthing process when such compressibility enables her to navigate the birthing canal, but during respiratory illness, this makes an infant particularly susceptible to lung collapse. It also means that an infant must work much harder and expend significantly more energy to generate a decent tidal volume relative to an adult whose chest wall is ossified and has greater outward recoil. 
In the infant, this manifests as tachypnea, retractions, seesaw breathing with excessive abdomen movement on inspiration, and head bobbing due to the use of accessory respiratory muscles. Another significant physiologic difference between infants and adults relates to airways resistance. Peripheral airways resistance in children under 5 is fourfold higher than in an adult. Medium-sized bronchioles contribute most to airways resistance. Owing to the smaller baseline diameter of these airways in infants and children, and based on Poisseau's law, even a small decrease in the radius of these bronchi due to increased mucus production or external compression from interstitial edema during lower airways disease produces a dramatic increase in airways resistance, leading to increased work of breathing and atelectasis. Furthermore, infants have a closing volume larger than their functional residual capacity. This is felt to be secondary to the reduced outward recoil of the chest wall already mentioned, as well as reduced inward recoil of the lung, leading to closure of some lung units during some or all portions of the respiratory cycle. This physiology is exaggerated during respiratory illness and leads to air trapping within some alveolar units and atelectasis of others. One must also appreciate that oxygen consumption in the infant is double that in an adult. Greater oxygen consumption requires increased minute ventilation, achieved either by increasing one's respiratory rate or increasing tidal volume. And unlike adults, infants have a relatively fixed tidal volume due to the horizontal configuration of their ribs, preventing the bucket handle action seen in adult breathing that enables them to generate larger tidal volumes. It's for this reason that one of the hallmarks of respiratory distress in the infant is tachypnea that may exceed 80 to 90 breaths per minute. Another difference between infants and adults is that ventilation is primarily diaphragmatic in infants, yet they have a relative paucity of type 1 slow-twitch muscle fibers in the diaphragm needed for endurance work. Knowing this, it's easy to appreciate why infants fatigue more easily than adults. With relatively less oxygen reserve and greater oxygen consumption, infants are also more prone to quickly desaturate when fatigue sets in and oxygen consumption exceeds delivery. Hypoxia quickly leads to bradycardia and reduced cardiac output, which, similar to minute ventilation, is rate-dependent in the neonate due to a less contractile myocardium, limiting the size of the stroke volume. So we are now entering the peak season for bronchiolitis and RSV infections in children, and I'm sure pediatricians up and down the country will appreciate this. So how does bronchiolitis affect the respiratory physiology in these patients? As its name implies, bronchiolitis predominantly affects the medium-sized bronchioles and causes inflammation. This is a viral illness, with RSV the predominating culprit. RSV results in loss of airway epithelial cilia important for mucus clearance and sloughing of epithelial cells in the airway. This leads to an accumulation of cellular debris along with neutrophils and lymphocytes within the small airways, in addition to peribronchial inflammation. Inflammation and sticky secretions increase airways resistance and plug the bronchioles, leading to increased work of breathing with atelectasis and impaired ventilation in some lung units and overdistension of others. Copious thick nasal secretions can block the already narrow nasal passages of infants, who, as we know, are preferential nose breathers. Infants with bronchiolitis also experience a deficiency in functional surfactant, leading to increased alveolar surface tension and a tendency toward collapse. Increased work of breathing, coupled with fevers that often accompany RSV bronchiolitis, further drive up oxygen consumption and place infants who already have poor oxygen reserve and relatively high oxygen consumption at baseline at high risk for hypoxemia. Taken together, these factors contribute to ventilation perfusion mismatch, increased work of breathing, poor feeding, dehydration, fatigue, and in the most severe cases, 
acute hypoxemic and hypercarbic respiratory failure. So last year, the NEJM published a randomised trial comparing high-flow oxygen therapy to standard oxygen therapy for infants younger than 12 months with bronchiolitis needing supplemental oxygen therapy. The paper stated that patients in the high-flow oxygen group had significantly lower rates of escalation of care due to treatment failure, which was the primary outcome. However, in the secondary outcomes, there were no differences between the groups in duration of oxygen therapy, duration of ICU stay, or duration of hospital stay. So as a paediatric intensivist, how do you interpret the results of this study? Well, the results of this study indicate that early use of high-flow nasal cannula for infants presenting with hypoxemia and bronchiolitis can reduce the need for further escalation of care requiring an ICU when compared to standard oxygen therapy. Based on what we know about the pathophysiology of bronchiolitis and how high-flow nasal cannula works to wash out carbon dioxide, thin secretions, prevent atelectasis, and minimize work of breathing, these findings aren't surprising. Infants in the high-flow arm of this study received 2 liters per kilogram per minute of high-flow. With an average weight of about 7 kilos, this translates into about 14 liters of flow per minute. Based on the studies we touched on earlier that estimated a 2 to 1 ratio of flow to PEEP delivery, the patients in the high-flow arm of this study likely saw a PEEP of about 7 centimeters of water, which is a typical modest level of CPAP support in bronchiolitis. It was interesting that their early application of high-flow nasal cannula didn't decrease overall length of stay or duration of oxygen therapy in this trial, though this may be related to the natural course of viral bronchiolitis, which tends to peak around day five of illness, but can have a more protracted course. These secondary outcomes may have been impacted by the fact that all 167 infants in the standard oxygen therapy group failed treatment were rescued with high-flow nasal cannula and 61% of these required no further escalation. One wonders whether the secondary outcomes would have been more favorable for the high-flow group compared to the standard group had the latter not been rescued with high-flow nasal cannula. It's particularly noteworthy and encouraging to see that only 1% of all infants in this study, 8 in the high-flow arm and 4 in the standard therapy arm, ultimately required intubation. While this study allowed patients in the standard arm to cross over and receive rescue high flow, making it impossible to know how many in the standard arm would have required intubation without the availability of high flow nasal cannula, I can say based on my own experience that has spanned a time before and after the advent of high flow nasal cannula, that our ICU looks very different in the post high flow era, with fewer infants requiring the ICU for management of bronchiolitis and fewer going on to require intubation. Lastly, this trial is an important addition to the literature as it demonstrates efficacy of high-flow nasal cannula without increased risk. No patient suffered a serious adverse event, and only one patient who received high-flow nasal cannula developed a pneumothorax. It's worth noting that one patient in this standard therapy group also developed a pneumothorax. That's very interesting to hear about your experiences here in the U.S. From my own experience in clinical practice in the U.K., Similarly, high-flow oxygen therapy is now the go-to for providing respiratory support in patients with suspected bronchiolitis. I was just wondering if there are any instances where you would caution against using this method of non-invasive ventilation. Well, there are actually very few instances where I would avoid high-flow nasal cannula, and most of these were cited by the authors of this trial. They include critically ill infants with impending respiratory failure, those with severe upper airway obstruction, and those with craniofacial abnormalities or basilar skull fracture preventing correct, safe application of the device. 
And while this trial excluded all infants with cyanotic heart disease, I assume this was to prevent confusion around criteria for escalation and care, which included acceptable cutoffs for oxygen saturation. I have used high-flow nasal cannula in bronchiolytics with congenital cardiac disease, though I would think twice before using it in any patient with known pulmonary hypertension where more controlled ventilation and oxygenation are key to avoiding life-threatening pulmonary hypertensive crises. And lastly, I would be cautious in infants presenting with frequent episodes of apnea and bradycardia, though I certainly have seen the stimulating effects of high-flow nasal cannula prevent recurrent apneic episodes in such patients. And it goes without saying that consideration should always be given to location, ICU versus ward, when trialing high-flow nasal cannula in patients at higher risk for failure. So on a similar theme, the NEJM also published another study earlier this year looking at the use of high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy. In this instance, newborn infants with respiratory distress, born at 31 weeks of gestation or later, and weighing at least 1,200 grams, were randomized to either high-flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy or CPAP. The study showed that the treatment with high-flow nasal cannula oxygen resulted in a significantly higher instance of treatment failure compared to CPAP and did not demonstrate non-inferiority, which was the primary outcome. What is your interpretation of this study? Well, these results don't surprise me for a number of reasons. First, the infants assigned to receive high flow received an initial flow of 6 liters per minute, which could then be titrated to no higher than 8 liters per minute. A prior study by Lavizzari et al. in Archives of Disease in Childhood, Fetal, and Neonatal Edition in 2014 demonstrated that flows of 2 to 7 liters per minute delivered PEEP values of 2 to 4 centimeters of water, measured by esophageal manometry in preterm infants, consistent with the papers mentioned earlier. Therefore, the 6 to 8 liters per minute used in this trial may deliver only 3 to 4 centimeters of water PEEP, as compared with the 6 to 8 centimeters of water PEEP administered to infants in the CPAP arm of the study. In addition, as the authors of this trial point out in their discussion, it's possible that the PEEP generated by the high-flow interface was less consistent than with the tight-fitting mask used with CPAP due to a variable leak from the nose and mouth. Although high-flow nasal cannula wasn't shown to be non-inferior to CPAP in this patient population, it's important to highlight that 80% of the infants started on high-flow were successful, and with the availability of CPAP for backup, there was no significant difference between groups in terms of the number of infants requiring mechanical ventilation and transfer to a NICU, nor was there significant difference in terms of adverse events between the two groups. Therefore, the authors correctly point out that the lack of non-inferiority of high-flow nasal cannula doesn't necessarily preclude a role for this mode of non-invasive support in treating some newborn infants. Are there any differences in the physiology of preterm infants and neonates compared with older infants that can affect the effectiveness of non-invasive ventilation methods? Well, many of the physiologic differences highlighted at the start of our discussion comparing infants to adults are further exaggerated in preterm infants and neonates. In addition, surfactant production in preterm infants and neonates is slower compared with older infants, leading to increased alveolar surface tension and a greater tendency toward collapse at end expiration. This can result in respiratory distress syndrome, one of the most common indications for respiratory support in neonates, particularly those born at less than 31 weeks gestation. Together, these differences place preterm infants and neonates at particularly high risk for respiratory compromise, atelectasis, fatigue, and frank apnea despite non-invasive respiratory support. 
And it goes without saying that administration of exogenous surfactant in infants with RDS requires intubation, though this can be accomplished with brief intubation followed by extubation and non-invasive ventilation. So now looking at both studies, uh, they used treatment failure as their primary endpoint, although defined using a slightly different criteria. Now, as a paediatric intensivist who gets called to review these patients who are deteriorating despite support with non-invasive ventilation, what are the type of things that you look for in deciding if the treatment has failed and the patient needs escalation of care or more invasive interventions? The authors of both New England Journal of Medicine papers we've discussed today nicely outline the criteria typically used to determine whether a patient requires further escalation and respiratory support. In my experience, the two most obvious indications that a patient is failing non-invasive ventilation are worsening tachycardia and tachypnea, often accompanied by more severe head bobbing, retractions, and seesaw movements of the abdomen. An inconsistent pattern of breathing with tachypnea alternating with severe bradypnea and even frank apnea are both ominous signs and indicate impending respiratory failure. An oxygen saturation falling below 90% despite an FiO2 greater than 40% is also a sign of failure. Lastly, I become worried when I noticed an infant who was more alert with spontaneous eye opening and crying now becoming more somnolent and less responsive to cares. This indicates energy depletion and or hypercarbia and hypoxemia until proven otherwise and warrants immediate escalation of support. And finally, how do you see the use of non-invasive ventilation developing in the future? With the ever-growing body of literature indicating efficacy of high-flow nasal cannula without additional risk, I anticipate the use of high-flow nasal cannula in pediatrics will continue to grow. I also anticipate that pediatric hospitalists will continue to become more comfortable managing patients with high-flow nasal cannula outside the ICU. Already, many pediatric wards have developed protocols for the application of high-flow nasal cannula and when to consider transfer to the ICU. And lastly, within pediatric ICUs, there are some who are beginning to use higher levels of flow before escalating to mask CPAP or BiPAP, which are more uncomfortable and often poorly tolerated by patients. So I think it will definitely be interesting to follow the use of high-flow nasal cannula oxygen both outside and within the ICU in the future. So that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I would like to again thank Dr. Phoebe Yeager for joining us today in our discussion about the use of non-invasive ventilation in paediatrics. It's been a pleasure. And that is, in fact, our last Curbside Consults podcast for 2019. I hope you have enjoyed listening to us throughout the past year, and we will be back in 2020 with more episodes. On behalf of the NEJM Resident 360 team, we wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hambick. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Remember to subscribe to the NEJM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the nejm.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is Dr. Ken Wu signing off.